This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, it is a wonderful asset to have the Carsey Wolf Center on our campus at UCSB. And I think all of us are really happy to be here tonight. Um, it's also just a pleasure to moderate this conversation about this, the hit series Lupin tonight. And as, uh, as Dr. Petro said, we're really fortunate to have Drs. Jean Beeman and Franz Windans-Twine here tonight, both of UCSB's sociology department. I want to thank them both for making time in their busy schedules for being here. Uh, the three of us are involved in a Mellon Sawyer seminar this year with professors Kim Yasuda and John Park called Race, Precarity, and Privilege, Migration in a Global Context. And our seminar overlaps with some of the themes that we will be discussing tonight. Um, I, I thought about this show and I realized that both Jean and Windance have uh, really deep and extensive scholarly expertise that's relevant to an, an analysis of this particular global TV series. So I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts, uh, Jean and Windance. And uh, to get our conversation starting, I was wondering if you could just each talk a bit about how you found out about this series and became interested in it. And, and when you first saw it, maybe what struck you most about the show? Um, Jean, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, well, thank you first, uh, Lisa, for having me, for putting this on. I'm delighted to be in conversation with both you and Windance and to have you both as colleagues, uh, particularly for the Sawyer Seminar. So, yeah, I mean, so my interest in the show um, primarily came, well, first came from my uh, navigating the uh, a global pandemic and being wedded to Netflix and therefore watching lots of shows. But particularly, one of the things that really captivated me about this show was, of course, the representation of Paris uh, and specifically the ways that Blackness is invoked and both implicitly and explicitly um, throughout the series, which hopefully we can talk um, talk about uh, a bit later. And actually, relatedly, the references to both a sort of local Blackness in terms of Blackness in France and also a kind of global Blackness. So thinking about, for example, I was really struck with like the soundtrack of the show invoking like the Four Tops and Lizzo and these sorts of things and kind of the sort of iconography there. So hopefully we can go back to some of these themes. Um, but yeah, as someone who's done a lot of research and has lived in Paris for multiple uh, years, I was really struck with uh, that aspect of the representation as well. Thanks. What about you, Windance? Um, so first, I want to also thank you. It's such a delight to be here with you and Jean. I think, um, so unlike Jean, I have not done research in, in Paris, but I have lived there. I think what, so first, I was introduced to this series by Netflix, <laughs> because like Jean, I don't usually watch a lot of TV, but I watch a lot of European television. So Netflix suggested to me that I would like this. So that's how I found out about it. But I think, so the first thing that really attracted me to the show was Jean's talked about the local and global blackness. I, it, I found it really thrilling and exciting the way this show moved between different genres, right? And I was also familiar with the actor. Uh, Omar Sy, I had seen him in a lot of films, but I was struck the way, the, in terms of my research has been on interracial family formations in the UK and interracial intimacy and racial literacy. So I found it very interesting the way 
that um, the relation, the intimate relationships between the main ca character um, and his former wife, the ex-wife, but also it, it, to me, it read like multiple genres at the same time. So there's the buddy buddy element, which is interracial, right? And then there's the, his relationship with white women, which we can get into later, which I thought was presented in a very different way from most US television, but was comparable to what you might find in some British series. So I was interested in sort of how the relationships and interraciality was presented and how it was gendered, but also how it changed depending on the scene. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of these shows that thematizes a lot of issues of race and <clears throat> immigrant heritage and culture. And we'll definitely get into those issues <clears throat> as we move forward. Um, it, it's, it's interesting, too, that you mentioned Netflix pushed it to you uh, because uh, this is kind of an, an element of the streaming industries is that we have different kinds of ways in coming into contact with uh, television series, not just from our, the national uh, context in which we happen to be situated, but uh, global productions are more and more accessible via these streaming platforms, which is pretty exciting. Um, you may know that the show Lupin is produced by Gaumont, which is a French production company that actually formed very early on in the history of film and, and cinema in 1895. Um, and the company has persisted through many kind of transformations over time, but now it specializes in producing these kind of local stories with global appeal. So in addition to Lupin, Gaumont has also produced other successful series like Narcos, F is for Family, El Presidente, and uh, The Barbarians, and a lot of other shows. And so I'm wondering if you have thoughts about why you think this show, Lupin, has become one of the most watched TV shows on Netflix, topping charts in countries, um, you know, as wide ranging as Germany, the Philippines, uh, Brazil, Vietnam. Um, Windance, I know you did a lot of field work earlier in your career in Brazil. So maybe we could talk a little bit about why this show has gained so much traction and attracted audiences internationally in, in such a successful way. Um, Windance, do you want to start us off and then we'll, we'll have Jean pipe in and hear what she has to say? First of all, this show is perfect for Brazilians because it there's something for everyone in this show. But the way Assange's relationships with white women in particular and the interracial family. So interracial families in Brazil are idealized as representing racial harmony. Um, and the Brazilians borrowed a lot from the French in terms of their denial of racism. My first book was actually about the denial of racism everyday racism in Brazil. So I think for the Brazilians, this film sort of affirms their view of interracial relationships as kind of the representative idealized family that would be a contrast to the US because the United States would be a negative reference. And I think, you know, look, you have a sexy black male actor. He's sexy, he's funny, he's non-threatening. Right. So there's this tension. So I think for the Brazilian audience, um, you have a black man who moves between in one scene being marginalized. Right. The next scene 
as Jean has mentioned, being a representative of transnational black glamour. You know, there's a lot of glamour and sexiness in this show. And because this is a very polysemic show, meaning that it can be read in so many different ways, depending on the national context, but the way it's set up, it's easy for, it would be easy for a Brazilian to not see the racism or not address that. And they could, because it's also a family drama, right? So because the, it shifts between being a buddy-buddy film, a crime film, but there's a lot around the family. And because he has produced a multiracial family, that would be something that would appeal to the Brazilians. And also the fact that this is a really powerful guy and, and he sort of gets what he wants, right? So it also undermines this notion that Blacks are only subjected to racism, only victims, because the Brazilians, that's, that wouldn't be attractive to them. But it also creates space for the white Brazilian viewer to feel proud of the fact that unlike the US, they've never had a history of criminalizing interracial marriage. So from the perspective of interracial intimacy and interracial sexuality and family formation, this show would really appeal to Brazilians because it would affirm their national mythologies around interracial harmony and the fact that, you know, if you think about his closest friend is this white guy that he grew up with. So there's like the, the, the buddies, his friends are from all different backgrounds, right? But his main friend is the white, I think I read as Jewish guy. And I think for Brazilians, that would be very appealing. You're talking about Ben, I think, which is his high school friend that he just then kind of became buddy so, and partner in crime throughout the. So the that's his buddy, and then the fact that the white women are the ones that are initiating. You know, when it goes to the flashbacks of him as a child, he's not initiating the sexual contact or the first kiss, right? So that's another kind of sign of see, you know the the French are like the Brazilians, it's not a big deal for people to get involved and to cross that line. That's not a barrier. All right, thanks for that announce. Um, Jean, what, why do you think this thing is, uh, this show has topped the charts in, in so many countries worldwide? I mean, you know, I, I looked up some of the stats and it said that during its first month, there were 70 million households that watched the show. It was at the time, the most watched non-English series on Netflix. And I think we know that that's probably been surpassed by Squid Game recently. (laughs) Do you have any sense of why, Jean, you think it's so popular internationally? Yeah, well, I would would piggyback off um, something Windance mentioned, which I I think we can't overstate the importance of Omar Sy as the main character and the ways that he's, you know, a sex, I mean, you know, we can have a whole separate episode about him specifically, but about his physicality specifically, but the ways in which he's a very attractive leading figure, I think that does a lot of work. Um, The other thing I think is really important to keep in mind too in thinking about the popularity of the show is also thinking about the sort of uh, global popularity of Paris as a city and the way that it resonates. So I was thinking when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about um, the other Netflix show that recently took place in Paris, Emily in Paris, which is a god awful show. But nonetheless, 
was also extremely popular, I think, because it's people, a lot of Americans, and not just Americans, people around the world, have these sort of like idealized, idealized ideals of what Paris is like. And I think we can't discount the way that, that the images of that city continue to circulate. So I think that that also is part and parcel of its popularity as well. Eugene, would you would you say that Paris is one of the main characters in the show? Absolutely, and I hope we can talk about that uh, specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's yeah, we'll, we will definitely come back to thinking about Paris and the representation of the city and what's there and what's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into some of that discussion, I'd like to also just talk about you know how you think adaptation and genre have played roles in shaping this TV series and its success. Um, We could talk a little bit about the uh, early 20th century Arsene Lupin stories and novellas from which the show was adapted. I'd also love to hear your thoughts um, about some of the generic elements that the show draws from and combines. And maybe there's some specific episodes or scenes that come to mind that seem to blend genres in certain ways. and I'd love to hear you uh, about what, what your thoughts are about adaptation and genre in relation to the, the formation of the show. Uh, Wendy, else, do you want to start off? So Jean probably knows more about the novel. I have not read, right, the, the novels and stories upon which this is based. But I think we know there's a long history in film and television of ad- adapting literary pieces. And I think my position on this, and this I, I've learned this from reading a lot of literary scholars, is that the, the adaptation should not be read as the same. It's a different cultural art, artifact than the original work. I think the fact that they cast this already very popular Black actor, so as I said earlier, I had seen um, Omar in a number of French films. So I think the fact that they cast him in this role in a, in a based on a novel where the character was white, presumably white, is also fits in with French republicanism, right? Because he can both signal, see, you know, we've integrated, we've assimilated black people or African immigrants in particular. So I think it was a brilliant choice, right? Because th- this does distinguish it from the, from the novels or from the series, the written series, and that you are confronted with the visual power uh, of this actor, which once again suggests, oh, we're no longer in the 19th or 20th century. We're now in the 21st century where an African immigrant can symbolically represent this almost heroic, like I thought of him as a superhero figure in some ways, because you wouldn't, we have not yet seen James Bond or Sherlock Holmes or Robin Hood or any of the comparisons, we have not seen any black person, especially a dark skinned black male represent that. So I think the casting choice here really totally transforms this in a way that other adaptations that I've seen in the past don't do. I mean, we're right now, there's a debate about whether um, a black guy can be the next James Bond, right? Anyway, I think the fact that they chose a black actor adds another level of adaptation to this series that I have not seen in other adaptations of films or TV shows. 
And I think it's not necessary for the viewer to have read the novels, particularly, and Jean can probably speak to the French context, but particularly for the French context, you wouldn't have had, everybody would be familiar with the outlines of it. But for people who aren't from France, not having read it is maybe even more powerful, right? Because they're meeting him in the in his current um, configuration as a black man, but a black man who has the power to move between these different spaces. And I'm interested in what Jean's going to have to say about this, but I found this so compelling as a show because you do have to suspend belief a little bit. But one moment he's like cleaning, you know, he's like cleaning the buildings with the other kind of marginalized immigrants. And then the next moment he's an international wealthy collector, right? And so I think the fact that you have a black man embodying that doesn't require you to engage with the original text, right? It takes it to another level. And, and in that sense, I, I experienced it as a fantasy, the way I've experienced some of Quentin Tarantino's films, right? Like it's sort of a fantasy, but it's a fantasy that works pretty well in the French context. What do you think, Jean? Yeah, just to briefly add on that, um, I think what's really interesting too to think about this at this as an adaptation of a novel is I think sort of uh, to kind of piggyback on what Windan said. I mean, this is a direct uh, adaptation, right? So it's like you know, Marseille is not um, Asen Lupin; he's the Asen Diop. He's a fa he's a fan of Lupin, and then I think what's really interesting is that the, the how the figure of Lupin um, is sort of you know seen as as um, uh, not, everyday knowledge to every French person. So it's like his his African, his Senegalese father tells him about who Lupin is. He passes on to his son. If you remember, the Maghreban police officer is also a huge fan of Lupin. So the way that the sort of iconography is sort of um, moving throughout the series without a single character actually embodying that. And I think that's a really clever way to think about adaptation, particularly around the, the ways of sort of um, including a non-white uh, representation of that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it was brilliant. I think the way they did that was brilliant. Um, I, I also think just building on what you've all said is that whenever we think about ad adaptation, we, we can, and actually there's Professor Chuck Wolf teaches, has long taught a class on adaptation in our department that's, um, that students have really loved and deals with so many different uh, works and contexts. And whenever we're adapting a work from literature to film or television, there's always the, the um, transformation of the work from print to screen, which involves image and sound and all kinds of dimensions uh, with regard to the, the elements of film style. But we, there's also adaptation in the sense of being able to situate a work within different social and historical contexts. And I think that's what this does so well, is that it takes contemporary France and the condition of, you know, immigrant culture and intergenerational life within families and tries to situate um, the, the Arsène Lupin and narratives within this really different context. Uh, and, and in doing so, also draws on Omar Sy's uh, very charismatic presence and persona mm -hmm. and builds that into 
the adaptation process. So I think it's a very complex text in many ways in terms of a media text. I also think just building on what you said about generic elements, we definitely have like the crime thriller and the detective uh, generic elements, as well as the action and the buddy film with the, the um, Asan and Ben always kind of conspiring together. There are even aspects of family drama woven in. And so because of this, the show has these tonal oscillations where you'll go from very high-powered, forceful, vigorous action and chase segments to um, a night at the symphony. You know, and I don't know if you remember in episode 10, the very last episode, there's this, there's beautiful moments where the symphony is kind of carrying on and scoring this very um, fraught and high-powered chase scene of Lupin. Um, but there are a lot of moments like that in the show where generic hybridity is exploited and maximized for a lot of um, dramatic effect. Um, I also think of that scene with the Four Tops album being played while um, Asan is just casually making dinner at, in his apartment. Meanwhile, a murder is happening right behind his back, literally. Um, so really interesting scoring and use of sound too, mm -hmm. along with issues of adaptation and genre. Um, so I'd like to kind of move on to a different sequence of questions that have to do more with both of your research interests. And Jean, um, you know, you've written this incredible book, Citizen Outsider, which looks at immigrant um, relationships in contemporary France. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the show's representation of Senegalese immigrants in France, as well as French citizens of African descent. Um, and, and maybe give us a sense of how you think immigrant family and intergenerational issues are dealt with in the series. Um, mm -hmm. Might even comment yeah. on the cop character, Youssef, who is, you know, Arab French as well. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting to keep in mind uh, in regard to your question is the role of colonialism and heritage, which I think is interspersed throughout the series. Thinking about um, the presence of non-white people in France as being directly a resulted from France colonial rule in much of Africa, uh, the Maghreb, Asia, the Caribbean, um, yeah, basically much of the world. Um, but yeah, so I think in terms of the sort of, uh, specifically the sort of Senegalese aspect of it, one of the things I think is really interesting um, and that my work also intervenes in is this notion of a Black France or a Black Europe, which among other things is, get, is forcing us to think about the ways that Black people have always been part and parcel of France, of Europe, even though they're continually framed as immigrants even today. And so you see that in the show where people will ask him, uh, there's a scene in one of the earlier episodes when he was a boy, um, that people ask him, you know, where are you really from, right? And this is a common thing that actually came up with my own research for people who are non-white but were born and raised in France are always asked, where are you really from? The idea being that you can't be a non-white person and also be French. And this sort of continual narrative of the supposed recency of diversity when in fact France has always been, um, well, Black people have always been part of France, but even more even more uh, to the point, there's always been non-white people part of France. And that's something that's continually ignored. And so I think it's really interesting to think about the ways the series kinds of um, comments on that. Um, I think in terms of the sort of generational aspect, 
I thought there was a lot to mine in the relationship between uh, um, Arsan and his father and thinking about his immigrant father who has to work as a, as a driver for this extremely wealthy white family and the sort of um, the idea that that would provide a particular set of opportunities for him as an adult, the ways that he was um, able to attend this elite private school because of the generosity, quote unquote, of um, this, you know, wealthy white woman and the sort of kind of paternalistic aspect of that, the sort of civilizing mission that's continually reinforced, reinforced in French society, again, long after the end of the colonial rule. And so I think a lot of sort of the ways that he's situated, both as a boy and as an adult, um, this is sort of what, a little bit of what um, when Nance touched on earlier, um, also speaks to the ways that, you know, Black people in France are simultaneously visible, hyper-visible, and then simultaneously ignored. And they're always, and I think what's interesting about the series is that he's sort of playing with that duality, essentially. But it's really a commentary on the ways that, um, you know, I think a smart commentary on the ways that Black people are always part of France, even though they've always been kept outside and continually reinforced that they're outside of France. And so there's a simultaneous thing that's happening there as well. Thanks. Yeah. And it's also so interesting to think about how the show treats um, Babakar, his father, mm-hmm. versus the son. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the absence of his mother, you know, and the, and mm-hmm. and we kind of talked a little bit beforehand about just, you know, maybe this is a time to bring up also the the position or lack of a position for Black women on the show. Um, do you want to say anything about that at all, Jean, um, before we switch over to Wendance? Sure. I mean, I think the one thing I would say, well, a couple of things about that. I do think that the sort of absence of Black women was really glaring to me watching the show. And I think it is a real limitation of the series. Um, and I think about this in a couple of ways. One, I think that, you know, it's really interesting to me that Omar Sy is obviously like the main character or the main actor of the show. But the actual racial and ethnic diversity of Paris isn't really captured in the show. Like there's very few scenes where there's multiple black people. Like he's kind of like one of a few black people, but there's not the same kind of rich diversity that actually exists in Paris. And so I think because of that, you don't see as many or really any uh, black women or Maghreban women or, you know, Asian women or these sorts of things. So I think there's like, that's a real absence. I also think though, and I'd be curious what Windance thinks about this. I also think it's a subtle commentary on sort of um, interracial relations in France in general and the ways in which um, they're definitely making a commentary between or a comment on the fact that he has this white female partner, both as a kid and then later as adults. So I think that's also probably happening, but I think that that is a huge uh, limitation of the series. Yeah. Windance, do you have any thoughts about that? And, you know, in, in terms of what Jean just was talking about, about the interracial, uh, you know, love relationships that are represented in the narration. Um, also, yeah. you know, in your work, Windance, you have written about interracial relationships, not in France, but in the US and the UK between Black men and white women. And I'm wondering, you know, how you think the, the, the show deals with interracial relationships and, you know, especially configured around a black man with a biracial son. How does this construct black, black masculinity, the interracial family, fatherhood and race in a different kind of constellation in, in the context of France that may differ from the UK or the US? Well, first, I mean, I agree with Jane that that's a limitation, but 
I, I hate to say this, but I think the absence of black women was purposeful and it made this a bigger global hit. And what I, what I mean by that is the fact that the multiracial interracial family is a marker of his assimilation, right? So to me, when I, when I saw him with the white partner and I thought, oh, okay, that makes him less dangerous. That in a way that positions him, that makes him, I think, for some viewers who aren't black, more respectable, um, more able to represent a, a black man who is not out of control. And also at the same time, it positions him, he can represent the hypersexual desirable black man. But remember, we, we never see him really initiate. So I, I viewed his interracial family as a marker uh, that he was a certain type of black person. And it made me think of the question of what are the costs of inclusion for black men in France? I think if, if black women had been centered more, it would have been harder to avoid certain uncomfortable conversations in the film. And so in some ways, black women would represent the, the reproduction of the black community in a very specific way, right? But the white woman, that he's involved with enable the white viewer or the non-white or the non-black viewer to see him as representing a certain type of multiracial France, a certain type of um, French Republicanism. And in terms of a comparison with the UK, Jean might have more to say about this. The UK has a much longer history of having interracial families and television series, right? But once again, what, what was distinctive about this is these women were not marked as working class, right? So in the UK context, there've been a series of, of shows where you're more likely to see, not always, but the white woman is viewed as not middle-class and thus not as respectable as the women in this particular series. I don't know if that makes sense. So there's the issue of respectability. And I, I, I also perceived his having the relationship with Claire. I think, I think on the one hand, they were both, we, we were both supposed to see them as marginalized as children, right? So they were both presented, were presented as sort of establishing this relationship in a context in which they both appear to be an outsider in some way. So that was important. So that raises the question of what type of white person did she symbolize when we compare her to the elite daughter um, of his father's employer. But I think once again, this is a polysemic text. So there's something for everybody, right? So people bring different readings to, that, to the interracial relationships. But I think the fact that we don't really hear him talking about his son that much in racial or ethnic terms. Now, when he goes missing and they're searching for him, I think his mother at one point says that he's, does she say he's mixed? Or But there's not a lot of overt discussion about what it means for him to have a son who has a white mother, right? That's not, there's not explicit discussion of that. And I think that separates it from either from a US TV show 
or at least most. And in the UK, you see some similar move. You see some similar representations where it's not always mentioned. It's sort of like they're there, but it's not. It doesn't drive the narrative forward, the narrative of the narrative arc. And so, I found myself at times wondering whether that was going going to become an explicit part of the narrative arc, but it didn't. What do you think about that, Jean? Um, I mean, it's interesting. I think in some ways, like, you know, it's kind of a tension between sort of what we might want to see as viewers versus what would actually be what happened in French society, right? Because I think you're right. I mean, there wouldn't be those references if this were like a real life show. So in some ways, it would feel like if that were added, it would be very much through a very like U.S. lens because it wouldn't be this way that people mention or explicitly mention racial categories. Yeah. One of the things that I uh, really liked and appreciated about this series um, was the way that it allows us to think about structures of state power and institutions as spaces of tension, corruption, um, you know, resistance, struggle. And so I'm wondering if you, you noticed how this series or have any comments on how the series you know, it addresses everything from colonialism to affluence to the kind of foundation and museum culture um, in the, the rarefied <laughs> upper classes. Um, it also has critiques of prisons and surveillance, immigrant labor, law enforcement. Um, it's just there's all kinds of space for us to think through what's happening within state power and different kinds of institutions and organizations right now. Um, were there any episodes that stuck with you or scenes that stuck with you where they were, there was a really powerful critique of state power or the, the kind of social hierarchies that are orchestrated by the contemporary nation state? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Jean, do you want to start us off? Sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of things you can, um, a lot of ways to answer that question. I mean, one thing I was thinking about is um, focusing on the Maghreban cop and the ways that he is simultaneously, I think because he's non-white and the one that's, you know, the rabid Lupin fan is the one that sort of goes more off the rails. But then also, um, I think, uh, you know, a spoiler alert, um, her son then, you know, doesn't fully accept him because he is a cop. And so I think there's a commentary, too, about the, about thinking about non-white police officers and the way that the police is an, an agent of the state. And even when they are non-white, they're still interpret that, interpreted that way. And they're still involved in the same practices of policing and surveillance than are white cops. And I think that that sort of that sort of arc of his character and his relationship with our son is a good example of that. Yeah. Well, Jean, you just stole my thunder. <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I was thinking about the, the cops, too. I was thinking about how there's a lot of similarity in, in the U.S. in terms of, um, so what jobs, what occupations are available to immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that em, immigrant men get, and even the women, get kind of sorted into becoming agents of the state. And that's also mm -hmm. one way they prove their belonging Right. And it's a way that they achieve respectability. Mm -hmm. And so you that's also happening in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that reminded me of that resembled films in the U.S. and in the U.K. 
because we have a lot of shows that are cop shows where basically that becomes your master identity. So I agree with, with Jean on that issue. And I guess the other thing I would say about state power was just the space of the museum as this rare, rarefied space where if you can prove that you have enough wealth and money, you can temporarily function as an honorary white, right? So if you can buy your way in to that space and you have the resources to purchase this outrageously expensive jewelry, mm -hmm. and you can temporarily, temporarily shift out of the marginalized position. And because that was really interesting when he was in that space and the way he was treated once they saw that he you know, had X amount. So I thought the museums were a symbolic expression of European and white elite power. And, and, and like, what does it mean to be able to purchase, to play in that realm? What does it mean to be able to function and play in that realm? And, and that was also a very glamorous space. And that, that space was sort of like, okay, this is the France. This France is both symbolically represented by its as Jean and I know it, there's so many, but at the same time, it's a space that it's, it's always considered a civilized space, right? Mm -hmm in a space that has excluded cultural products produced by people who were colonized. And so it's a space that black people can only enter as consumers, mm -hmm. but you have to be wealthy. So I thought a, a lot about what the museum represented and I thought it represented the, the, the elite. Yeah. yeah, if I could just uh, jump in on that real quickly. I think um, I totally agree, but I would, I would just kind of even, um, maybe hammer home specifically on the, not just the museum, but actually the Louvre specifically and what the Louvre represents in Paris, right? So it's not just any museum. I think that's very, very telling that he's working as a janitor in the Louvre. He tries to steal the necklace in the Louvre, right? There's a sort of representation, I mean, you know, like we can remember maybe when I.M. Pei first uh, uh, designed that, that the pyramids, right? I mean, like, and what a big moment that was and sort of how that's one of the visual representations of the city. So I think that's a big part of it. And then the other thing I would say also about the Louvre, it was really, um, fascinating. I was thinking about this when I was rewatching this series in preparation for this conversation. To be thinking about this in the in the moment where there's starting to be conversations around across Europe about uh, returning looted items that are in many of these museums, like the Louvre, not just in France but across Europe, right? And having these conversations of how do you redress, you know, physical artifacts that are stolen during colonialism, right? And thinking about the Louvre as a representation, I mean, like, you know, it's a great museum, go, get, go visit it. But a lot of the artwork, right, is, you know, it stems from France's colonial history. And I, I said this earlier, I was thinking about, um, I, don't, I don't know if you remember the old uh, music video from Beyonce and Jay-Z when they're in the Louvre, right? And part of that is exactly the same thing, right? They're sort of taking back the space where the images of blackness are as, you know, slaves, et cetera, et cetera. And they're sort of, Re, you know, reclaiming that space. And that's a very intentional thing. So I would just sort of double down um, on the sort of museum thing to specifically focus on the role of the Louvre in these sort of conversations. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right, Jane. And I was thinking about Beyonce and and how they kind of reclaim that. That was, mm -hmm. but that takes wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Who else could pull that off? Right. And it was also interesting to think about the response at the time of Parisians and other French people to the Beyonce video and like being so upset that Beyonce and Jay-Z were running around the loop, right? I mean, it's exactly that, like Black people being out of place and how that upsets people. So, yeah. 
Yeah, no, thanks for those comments, both of you. Uh, I, I just also want to point to a scene that was from episode three, where Assange, and this has to do with kind of a reversal of, uh, you know, a critique of state power too, like where Assange um, gets Commissioner Dumont, um, kidnaps him and, you know, frames him like Dumont had framed Babacar, uh, you know, uh, Assange's father, and then does it, there's a kind of staging of an interrogation. And there's a, you know, Simone Brown calls that surveillance when um, people kind of, you know, who have been disenfranchised and marginalized seize the power of surveillance in order to turn it back on the state. And that moment is so powerful because uh, Assan seizes the technolo technological apparatus of surveillance and all of its optics in order to turn it back on the corrupt law enforcer. And then there's a kind of allegory going on there too, in terms of the interrogation uh, space. And um, I, I, I just found that really striking as a sequence. And there's even the presentation of actual evidence in the frames for the commissioner to look at while um, Assan is reversing these, um, these optics and these power relations. Um, so I think that the show overall is really uh, has a lot of space in which it plays with the vicissitudes of state power and push back against it. And I think that's one of the reasons, too, it's probably gaining so much traction internationally among viewers that are looking for critiques of state corruption and narratives that help them deal with um, what they're facing in their everyday lives. So um, Moving on to a next, uh, 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 you know, I'm just like, can we please talk about Omar Sy? <laughs> um, <laughs> I just say one thing about the state power. I love the fact that you chose that scene. I, one of the things I think that also makes this so appealing is this is a very smart guy. He's very savvy. He understands how state power operates. And so I'm thinking of the scene at the gas station where he's handcuffed and he steals you know, he basically has stolen this police ID card and he understands that white people are not going to look at that closely. And he so he manages to there's several moments in the series where he pretends to be a police officer and no one questions it. I thought that was really, really fascinating how that's one example of how racism operates. If you in this context, if you just say you're this and you have the ID then you're not just a black person anymore. You're, you're treated as an agent of the state. So I just wanted to say that. I thought that was really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's a key point. Um, thanks for mentioning that. Um, I, I want to just ask one more question before we open it up to our audience. We have about a little more than 10 minutes left uh, before we're done with our event. Um, you know, Omar Sy, I read a piece New Yorker about him in high school. He he was thinking about becoming, you know, a heating and cooling tech technician. Um, nothing wrong with that. A lot of working class people make a living um, doing all kinds of uh, everyday work in people's homes and in uh, you know organizations. Um, but he shifted. Now he he has a Caesar Award, which is like the French equivalent of the Oscars. Uh, he won that for the 2000 film Untouchables, and he's been named the most popular man in France. I'm just wondering what do both of you know about his background, his training as an actor, other films he starred in, and then what are your thoughts about him as the star of the show? We kind of started with that when you're talking about global 
blackness um, and, and, and his potency as a star, uh, as the lead of the show. So um, I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit more about him as the actor, as the creative laborer behind uh, one of the many re- creative laborers behind the show, but how have they been received? How has he been received by audiences in France, Europe and beyond? I mean, Jean, can I say something quickly? I, I think of him as sort of like the Sidney Poitier of the moment. Like there's some, I didn't know much about his background. I had seen him in then Untouchables and some other films. I think that, that he's just, he has such a stage presence. He's so charismatic. And I think France didn't know they needed him, but once he became so famous, they're like, oh my God, we can cast him in these shows and he can be kind of a new global iconic representation of France. I think the fact that he was chosen to star in this series is precisely because he he had already achieved this thing. He had already become so popular, so he was safe. He had already been anointed, right? And, and the, I just want to say one thing, it's a little off point, Lisa and Jean, but one of the things that struck me in this series was the absence of anger. Now his father maybe showed some anger, but he really comes across in almost every scene as just this really nice guy, right? He's just this really nice guy. And I think that he, I think he's benefited in some ways, the way that black people benefit from institutional racism and, and national racism is you find the one, like they'll anoint one, right? And then that one person gets the, all the roles and he's been anointed by the French Academy. You know, they've, I mean, the movie industry, they've anointed him and he's incredibly charismatic. And I didn't know a lot about his background, Lisa, but I wasn't surprised that they chose him to be the star of this series because I've seen him in other films and he just really steals the scenes. What do you know about him, Jean? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, a couple of quick points. Um, I know we're getting close to time. I mean, I, I one, I'm not surprised that he wanted to be a heating quality technician because I actually think there's a lot of research, I guess, including my own, that shows that, you know, Black and Maghreban origin individuals are often tracked into vocational kinds of occupations, right? So that that maybe isn't, isn't as surprising. Um, but yeah, I think also just to add, I think the massive success of the Untouchables and him getting the, being the first Black person to win a Caesar, I just mounted him into international stardom and especially the fact that he's now living in LA I guess he moved here about a decade ago I think it's also doing a similar work one thing I wanted to comment on specifically about him that I think is really uh, instructive particularly at this moment is the ways that he started to be very um, vocal about racism in France so for example he wrote a very uh, very uh, well-written op-ed following the death of George Floyd uh, last year, that among other things made an explicit comparison with incidents of, you know, such as George Floyd's death, with the incident of the death of Adama Charlie in 2016 and other incidents of police violence against Black people. And so I think that because he has this platform, he's able to sort of use his voice in these ways. It's been really fascinating to see how he's talked about 
um, you know, not ways that I always agree with, but, you know, this differences and similarities between racism in the United States and racism in France and having, you know, being now that he's actually literally living in the United States, being able to do that. And it's also really interesting, too, to think about sort of how he's read and how he recognizes how he's read in the United States. So he's said multiple times that only coming to the U.S. is he accepted as a French person. In France, he's seen as an, you know, as an, as an immigrant or, as, you know, uh, an outsider of what, or what have you, which is, again, a very common experience for you know, people of color in France, they sort of feel the most French or identify as the most French once they actually leave France. And so I think he's like also like playing with what that sort of duality affords him in terms of what he's allowed to say in both the French media and and, um, and the Anglophone media as well. Thank you. That's great to hear uh, your comments on that. Uh, we have two questions that have come in from the audience, and I want to make sure to read these. And they do, in some ways, resonate with the conversation that we've been having just the last few minutes. The first one asks, wondering what you both think about the timing of the show's release and its widespread popularity in relationship to the intensification of Black Lives Matter activisms and protests in and since 2020 in the US, France, and elsewhere, discourses of policing, racism, violence, and corruption. So that's the first question. I'm gonna stack these because we're short on time. The second one is, um, you know, the, people would like to hear, Jean, a little bit more about Senegalese immigration. How does the specificity of the protagonist Senegalese immigrant background deepen our understanding of the character and the show's engagement with race and diaspora? So if either of you have comments in response to those questions, I'm sure our audience members would be really grateful. There was also another one about um, Omar Sy, and so I think your comments um, gratif hopefully gratified that, um, that audience member who had a question. Jean, do you wanna take it or I could start? I, I mean, Jean, you wanna comment on the Senegalese? Or yeah, you can go first so that I can okay. go ahead. Okay, I'll respond to the timing of the release of the film. I think as Jean mentioned earlier, this is a good time to release any type of television show, right? And I think Netflix, if we think about Netflix even two or three years ago, I didn't actually watch Netflix that much because it was too US centric, right? They didn't have as many global TV shows. So I think, I think this, is, this was a period during the pandemic where you have a captive global audience because this was a global pandemic, right? So this is a period where the timing, I think, was, I don't know how much it was related to George Floyd, but I think it was a really good moment for Netflix and, and for this French production company to see what, to kind of test the waters for an audience in the US for this show. Because historically Americans have been perceived as not wanting to watch anything that required them to read subtitles. I mean, you know, there, there used to be a history of dubbing. So I think that the fact that we had a global pandemic made this a good, an ideal time to sort of put a lot of TV shows out there and just see how much of the audience can we capture since everyone's at home sitting on the couch. And I'm not, I don't feel I really know how this, how the George Floyd murders affected this film because the theme of police corruption and violence and racial violence is a longstanding theme, at least in US television shows. Now, maybe Jean can speak to the French. 
I don't know, I'm not as familiar with the history of French television, but in the US, we have seen television shows that dealt with racial violence and police corruption and black people. So it wasn't, this wouldn't be a new time for us. I mean, this would not be new, but maybe Jean, can you speak to the fact that maybe this is the first of its type for the French? Yeah, I mean, I can, yeah, I don't know if I think I, I, I would go as far to say it's the first of its type um, in terms of representations of, you know, uh, issues around racism and policing. I mean, um, maybe people remember uh, 1995's LAN, which, you know, um, among other things, it was a representation of police violence and racism, specifically in the Parisian banlieues, um, which, you know, it was also massively popular around the world. Um, I think just to quickly respond to the question around uh, Senegalese particularities and the implications for, for race and diaspora, um, I think it's. I think it really encourages us or reminds us to never to rem to remember that France is never the sort of geographical boundaries or the borders that it is presently. Right. So again, like you know, France is not just a sort of hexagon. It's um, a world. It's a global empire. It's long been an empire. And I think thinking about the presence of both Senegalese immigrants and more specifically their children and grandchildren invites us to remember that fact that it's never just a um, you know occasional like I was saying earlier a sort of question of recency of migrants. In fact, blackness has always been or black people have always been part of France. And so reminding us of the colonial relationship between Senegal and France is one way to achieve that, or one way I think to series achieves that. All right, uh, we have time for one more quick question. And uh, there was a, a question about Paris um, that we kind of al alluded to earlier. And I just wondered if either of you wanted to comment on the way the show represents particular spatial elements of Paris, uh, what landmarks and aspects of life in Paris are foregrounded and what do you think is missing or maybe left out and could be better integrated into the, the story world of the show? Well, I'll just quickly respond. I just kind of piggyback off of something I said earlier, which is that I do think the show um, misses a lot of the sort of everyday ethno-racial diversity of, of the city. Um, with the, ex with the uh, exception of, I think, one of the first episodes, there really isn't a representation of the housing projects um, like there is in the first episode. I think it was, you know, either um, the first or second episode where he's in that high rise um, building. That's the only kind of representation you see of non-white people. And even then, that's just a very small part of the series. And I think that's a big absence. I also think... Um, there's, you know, we we talked about the emphasis or the use of the Louvre and how that how that factors in. I also think there's an emphasis on a lot of sort of iconography or sort of typical Paris landmarks. So I'm thinking about the Luxembourg Gardens, the Marche de Pousse. Um, uh, and so I, I, I think you miss a lot of the sort of more kind of quotidian elements of living in the city or moving through space or taking the train or the bus that um, um, is actually just part of living there. So I think there's a there's a bit of a sort of um, focus on the sort of spectacular elements of the city. Um, and I think that that's a slight limitation in terms of representation as well. Yeah. Thanks to uh, both of you. Uh, I want to also mention that um, you know, Jean will be teaching a seminar with our Mellon Sawyer seminar in the spring focused on France and specifically on race and uh, immigration in, in France. Um, so if people are interested in that, please feel free to follow up. 
I also wanted to say that Netflix has renewed Lupin for a third part. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned. There will be more to watch and more to discuss. And I believe that will start streaming in January 2022. So right around the corner. Um, just want to say thanks to everybody who, who um, attended and participated tonight. And again, thank you to uh, Patrice and Emily and everybody at the Carsey Wolf Center. We really enjoyed having this conversation and, and, and uh, hope everybody has a great evening. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you, Jean. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.